0: Amen, amen. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Toby, for leading us in the time of scripture and prayer. This is usually when I say, kiddos, we love you, God bless you, you're dismissed. But because it's a fifth Saturday, we're going to hang out with our kids tonight. And while we're doing that, kiddos, can I talk to you for a minute? Kiddos, students, I want you to come on down front if you can. You're going to have to sit for a little while longer, so let's break it up. You can sit in this first row. I'm going to ask Miss Amy if she could come up, too. Y'all grab this first row because I want to show you something. What do I have in my hand? Is that right? Come and look a little closer. I want you to tell me what you see. This is a real box that Miss Amy brought from her preschool class. There's some trash. What else do you see? Are there half crayons? Is there a lot of whole crayons? There's, there's colorful. They're colorful. Mm-hmm. Whoa, you're really pulling it down. You're strong. Let go, Justin. Let go. Don't push it down, dude. Um, they, all the it. they all have the logo. You can grab a handful and go sit back because y'all have some great answers. I'm going to give you something. You don't have to take all of it, but you can look at it while we talk. Audrey, you can take. Perfect. Now, I heard you say that there's some trash in here. I heard you say that they're colorful. And I heard you say that there's a lot of broken pieces in there. Now, Justin, you got a handful. Some of y'all got some. What if I said, I want you to make a masterpiece, but that's all you could use? You think you could do it? I bet you probably could. But Justin's holding a lot of paper. Audrey just got one. There's a lot of broken pieces. Grab another one. I wonder. Here you go, Audrey. Grab one more. This is perfect. That one was stuck. We got stuck crayons. We got broken crayons. What if I said, I don't know that I could make a big masterpiece, but... Y'all said it was colorful. You could probably make something kind of neat, right? But if I looked at it and I said, you know, wouldn't it just be easier to throw all this away and buy a new big box of brand new fresh ones? Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, it would. But what, Knox? You're going to waste all your money? We'll probably waste all this. So let's listen. If I decided, you know what? I like these, they're colorful, yeah, they're a little broken, yeah, there's a lot of trash, but I think there's some beauty in this box. Cohen, you talked about how you saw some logos, and they can still color a little bit, right? Yeah, with a gold uh, frame. You want to buy a painting from the store with the gold frame and then just put glue on it and then just throw the crayons on it. Word to the wise, let's not take Cohen to the DMA, the Dallas Museum of Art, because he's going to put some glue and crayons on these masterpieces. But that would be kind of a new masterpiece. You'd make something new out of something old. So we have decided that it would be better to make something new. Out of all these broken pieces. Yes. What if I told you. That that's exactly. The kind of thing. That God. Does. What if I told you. That God. Takes broken pieces. And makes something. New. Miss Amy. We took some broken pieces. From this box. And Miss Amy made something new. And she's going to show you what she made. What do you see? She melted the crayons. Did she make it into something new? She put it into a container. What shape is it now? A heart. heart. How many colors are in there? 25. 25. So many. Oh, that's so beautiful, Audrey. God loves to do what Miss Amy did, to take broken pieces that some people think it's nice, but it could use some help. And he makes them into something new. Can I read you a story real fast? What if I told you that God takes not just broken crayons, but the broken stuff of earth? When I say, what's some broken or sad or not so great things In the world. Could you tell me that? What do you think? Sadness. Good. Oh, a tree that got struck by lightning. Correct. What else? What are some sad things, some broken things? A person that got struck by lightning. Pretty much anything that gets struck by lightning. That's not ideal. Sin. Sickness. There's broken things. So what if I told you that God won't just... Do something with crayons. God's going to do something with lightning strikes or sickness and sin and brokenness. And he's going to make something new. What if I told you that that's one of the last stories in the Bible. And it's one that I want to read to you from this special Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible that most of you have at home. You do have it. Now, some guy named John. Can you all say John? That's a common name now. It was a common name then. He was on an island and he had a special imagination and a special imagination from God that gave him some words to describe when God makes everything new. Cohen, listen to this part. John said in his special God-given imagination, I see a sparkling city shimmering in the sky. Can you imagine that? Close your eyes and think about how it's glittering, glowing. And this city, look, is coming down from heaven, from the sky. Heaven is coming down to what? Earth. God's city is what this is. And it's beautiful. Think of the most priceless and precious jewels. Can you imagine jewels You may not be super into it, but just imagine how bright and colorful and beautiful they are. It's got walls of topaz jewels, jasper jewels, sapphire, blue jewels, wide streets paved with gold. Have you ever seen a street paved with gold? Gleaming pearl gates that are never locked shut. Can you imagine? John says, Wait a minute, where's the sun in this new city? Where's the moon? They aren't needed anymore because God is the light. God is all the light that people need. No more darkness. Can you imagine no more darkness? No more night? And then a king says, look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying. Oh, wait a minute. Is being sick and dying like a broken piece of the world? But God is going to make it so that there's no more sickness and no more dying. Because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone. And then he says, because I am making all things new. Can you say that with me? All things new. Say it one more time. All things new. He says, I will wipe away every tear from every eye. And it said, the voice that sounded like thunder says, look, can you say it with me? I'm making all things new. This person that said this, you want to guess who will say it someday? What do you think? You can just say it. You. Me? Jesus. So, 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 yeah. Jesus. Did y'all hear that three-year-old say it? Made, Jesus. I made, I made, you made something new. Yeah. Now, Miss Amy has something for you to help you remember how God will make all things new. Right now, we have some broken pieces You know someone who's sick. You know someone who's died. But one day, just like our crayons and so much more, God will make everything new. Do you see? Do you have something new? Can someone look at what the paper says? What does it say, Nora? Say it again. Look, I am making everything new. Guess what this new thing is made from? These same broken crayons. Here you go, Audrey. Maybe you can think about this later and you can color with this and make a beautiful masterpiece just like God will do for our world. Hey, kids, let's say a prayer and then you can go and try those out on your activity pages. Can you guys pray with me? All right, let's pray. God, thank you. For your promise that you will make all things new. Until then, we know that people are sick, and we ask you to heal them in Jesus' name. We know that people are sad, so we ask you to help them in Jesus' name. God, we love you and we thank you for these precious lives. Bless and keep them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, kiddos. You guys can go back to your folks. And we will wrap it up here in a minute after I talk with the grown-ups. Well, thanks, everybody, for bearing with me as I almost dropped a basket of crayons all over as a parting gift to our friends at Freeman Heights. But this evening, we are wrapping up not just our time here in this space. We are wrapping up a series called After Life. And I hope that in our time this month, you have come to understand that the Bible may not tell us everything about afterlife issues, but it does give us enough glimpses to know some things. And so even though I need you to understand two things that I'll tell you in a moment, there are some things that we can know. The first thing as a disclaimer is, There's so much mystery. We simply don't know what's unknowable. The Bible doesn't give us as much as we want or as much as our popular culture leads us to believe. The second thing I need to say by way of disclaimer is that some of my responses will be, I'm not sure. We're not sure. But let me tell you why it's a great idea to ask questions about even these afterlife issues that are frankly Not fully knowable. I'll tell you because when I was an intern, my first church ministry job, I was working with students. And in particular, middle school students. And I will remember this for the rest of my life. I remember where I was. We were playing outside in the course of some fun youth group style games. And a child paused and stopped me and said, listen. I've got to ask you this question because he was really worried. And his question was this. Is it true that when I see Jesus that before he lets me into heaven he will whip me for every cuss word I've ever said? And I remembered just <laughs> being shook and just thinking about how many layers that we need to unpack here. Like, who told you this? And do you cuss a lot? You're 11. (laughs) And there is something that begins to well up deep within me that if I'm lying, I'm dying, I desperately wanted to say this. But there are children in the room, so I'll keep it light. Something to the effect of, no, he is gracious, So cuss as much as you mm -hmm -hmm want. But because I wanted to start a career in ministry, I did not say this. I did not want to lose my first job. But I just put my hand on his shoulder and I said, my friend. Whoever told you this did not tell you something true. If you're Jesus's, he's forgiven you and he'll be so glad to see you. You don't have to worry about that. That's why it's important to ask questions. Because even though some things are unknowable, we can know enough to get a good sense of what the Bible is trying to show us. And so just by way of recap, before we work through about a dozen or so questions, the first is that heaven is God's space. Whatever we mean by the word heaven is less about souls on a cloud in a heavenly country club and more about where God is. And the trajectory in the Bible is less about us flying away up there and more about the movement from heaven to earth. Incrementally as the kingdom comes in fullness until one day as we read with our children at the end of the story, heaven and earth will be renewed and it will be one. Second, we talked about hell. In a very lengthy sermon. Hell is what's experienced when someone rebels against or rejects God's life and love. The Bible speaks of two literal, you can point to it on a map, places that say if you persist in this way, you are going to wind up like a smoldering trash heap where bad things happen. You should turn away and choose God. And so that was a metaphor For whatever will happen after life, if you persist in this way of going against the grain of God's life, of going against the grain of God's love, whatever it looks like on the other side, you don't want to know firsthand. And number two, it is something that is experienced when you persistently say, no thanks, and you reject and rebel from God. Third, we talked about resurrection. Resurrection is the ultimate hope. It's what we're really looking for, that we wouldn't just be at rest in soul, but we would be renewed and resurrected in body. Last week, we talked about Christ's return, not a rapture. The rapture was a theory invented in the last 200 to 150 years. It is not a consistent um, theological view, although American pop Christianity would lead you to believe that it is the view, I'm here to tell you that's some distorted biblical understanding and that the consistent teaching in the broad stream of Christianity is that Christ will return once at the end of the age in order to judge, to bring restoration, and then to renew and restore that which is broken. That's what we talked about last week. Most of the questions that we'll be working through deal with surprise, hell, and resurrection. And so that's what we're going to be working through. I've got about a dozen or so after consolidating and accommodating for some multiples, and I'm going to move real quick. Is that okay? I'm going to move quickly. You've been thinking about this. We can also frame this. Like I do when we do premarital preparation, I say, we're going to have a brief conversation together like we do with a couple that is going to lead to other conversations. So don't think this is the final word. If there's other things, we can continue to discuss this. But for now, let's work through the 12 questions that were submitted. First, do you think our bodies and souls do something different than each other when we die? Like our bodies stay in the ground until the second coming, and our souls are with Christ when we die? The short answer is yes. And then let's work this question in before we talk more about it. Then, if that's the case, is there some merit to the idea of a soul flying away? I poked a little fun at the old gospel hymn, I'll fly away, O glory, I'll fly away. Well, isn't that kind of what you're describing? And is that the same as Paul's reference to a spiritual body in 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 15? The short answer to that last part is no. What Paul's talking about there is is a body that's animated by the engine of the spirit, the life-giving spirit of God, the spirit of heaven. But in the interim, what are our bodies and souls up to? Well, this is what I tried to convey in the afterlife two-step. This is something I hope you walk away with. We can't know all the details, and in fact, what's known as the interim state, y'all know that word interim, it's an in-between, There is scant little of anything about it. And so it is one of the most um, mysterious and unknown portions of theology. But there's enough glimpses that say your life, if it's hidden in Christ, will remain with Christ. Conscious, I believe, to God, to Christ. And you're resting in God's presence. And that experience can be paradise or heaven as it's popularly conceived. So I have no problem saying that our loved ones that trusted in Jesus, that tried to love him and others well, that they are presently right now absent the body and with the Lord. I believe that Jesus wasn't lying to the thief on the cross when he said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, there's no other mention of that word paradise But we'll talk about that a little bit later. That's phase one. I believe you're resting in God's presence. So your body is resting in the earth, but whatever it is that is soul, which is a word that is actually a word for life, whatever it is that makes you you, that is living and active, that's with God. It returns to God. And then the second part of our two-step, at the end of the age, you will be joined soul, and body in a resurrection. It's what N.T. Wright calls life after life after death. So those in Christ are resting, I believe, with him, and they are just like us, going to wait for the resurrection of the body. This is the time when the return will happen, then the resurrection, then the judgment, then the restoration. Let's talk about this other question now. Do we experience the passage of time after death? The answer is, who knows? I don't. And if so, if we do experience the passage of time after death, I have a hunch that it's probably very different than the way we do now. How many of you have heard a verse in 1 Peter that says, with the Lord a day is like what? 10,000 years. If you think just in the broader strokes of history of our universe and whatever, human beings have really only been on the planet for a blink of an eye. So maybe, we don't know, but maybe if we do experience the passage of time, it's probably significantly different than the way we're experiencing it in a mortal body. This person also said that they're not a fan of the cliches, they're in a better place, or they're looking down on you from heaven. So what do you make of those? Well, let me say also that you could also imagine, and Christians that are orthodox do, that they're not looking down, they're not really in a better place. You can believe that they're not experiencing the passage of time because they're literally just like asleep. And follow me here. There's a minority view. Some people call it soul sleeping. That a person is in the ground, and when they experience death, they could be dead for like a thousand years of our time. But what they experience is the closing their eyes in death, and a moment later, they open their eyes at the end of time when Jesus returns, and they experience a resurrection. Has any of you heard this view or this idea? The Bible talks in euphemisms about those who are asleep. And so the broad answer is we don't know, but you can certainly have room to understand that. Now, what do we make of these cliches? I think, number one, they're born from a place of wanting to console another, they're in a better place. I would caution, and I remember the experience of one of my professors that was with a fresh widow at her wake, and he was comforting her as she was grieving. And he said, well, you know, your husband is in a better place. And she collected herself. She looked at him in the eye and said, I know that, Pastor, but I would really love him to be at the dinner table when I get home. And I think she has all the reason in the world to feel that and to hold intention, grief, and hope. So understand they're coming from a good place, but maybe they're not always that helpful, especially the one that says they're looking down on you from heaven. I think that is such a stretch biblically, though it's born from a place of wanting to help. I think it's a little bit of a stretch. And I think if we're honest, it feels a little creepy. But let's just put we don't know over top of that because we know so little about the interim state. I just know if this person is not a fan of these, they have every right to be. And so we can just embrace the mystery and cling on to hope. Third question. I like this one. Thinking of the state of Jesus on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, was this to teach us about the period of rest between death and resurrection? I don't think explicitly, that's why it's there, but I think it does teach us something. That Jesus as truly human, listen, experienced a true human experience of death. How crazy it is that God died so that he might say, I know what you feel. I know everything of the human condition. So theology fills in some blanks here. There is an old idea that's called the harrowing of hell. That on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, Jesus goes down to Sheol or Hades, the realm of the dead, the place of the dead. I can't talk a lot about that right now. Go and hear my hour-long sermon on hell. And he goes to that place and he rests loose from the clutch of death, those who have been resting and waiting. And he says, they're mine. So that he might free them, because now he has the keys of death and Hades. So we're filling in some blanks, but there's something happening there. Can I tell you what I'm starting to wonder and think out loud? I'm wondering if where Jesus goes on Saturday is he descended to the dead. Or as the creed sometimes is translated, he descended into hell. However, like I mentioned with the thief on the cross, maybe what Jesus and that thief experienced was paradise, the best place in the realm of the dead. And what some others experience is less than paradise. Maybe they're in the same realm, the same plane. But Jesus and the thief and all those who are in Christ or trusting God or Abraham's bosom or any mysterious euphemism you want to say, maybe their experience is palpably different from those who've rebelled and rejected. And I wonder if Jesus went to paradise, but then when he was raised and is now seated at the right hand of God, he is sort of kind of elsewhere. Christ still fills all and he's in all, but there's something to that. He went to paradise that Saturday as a true human experience, although he was he was experiencing it like those who are kept in the care of God. Did that just lead to a hundred more questions? I told you I'm thinking about this out loud so we can talk later about all that. I think it does teach us, number one though, that Jesus experienced what we experienced, and I think that that's something powerful. Are we okay on all that? Yeah, a hundred more questions. We'll talk about that another day. Number four, what are your thoughts on cremation? How will we rise if we're cremated? I gotta tell you that I felt some kind of way about this early on in seminary because that's what seminary students do. They think real strongly about everything and everything they thought before was wrong and the only thing that they think right now is right. And so I'll tell you that I don't feel too strongly about it. But the reason that I felt pretty strong then was because it was a testimony to the bodily resurrection. And I had come from a tradition that really minimized and never talked about it. So I was like, Amy, if I die tomorrow, do not cremate me. I want you to put my body in the ground and say, this body is going to be raised. And she said something of like, that's going to be an awkward funeral. I said, well, you can dress it up a little bit, but that's how I felt. Now, I believe that God doesn't care nearly as much as seminary Adam did because think for two consecutive seconds about it. What's the difference between a body that's cremated and someone who died 6,000 years ago? Substantially nothing. And so the answer to the second part of that question, how will we rise if we're cremated in the same crazy, mysterious, and wonderful way that everybody will, whether you're dead a week or A 1,000 years. So I think it's okay to be cremated. I think it's more than okay. And I think that God seems to care less about these legalistic matters than we tend to. Number five, do you think that there will be different races in heaven? And by that, will we look different than other people? I get that there's one human race and that race is a social construct, but I was wondering if people will be different shades, essentially. I can say... I mean, my best educated guess is, yeah. Number one, because they recognized Jesus after he was raised, and it took him a minute. Number two, remember to Thomas, he showed him what? His scars. There were some earthly features that made it through the other side. That's a mystery. That's crazy. But they recognized Jesus, and he had some marks of his previous body. And I think a real strong case, too, even though I talked about Revelation as heavily symbolic, mark Revelation 7. Mark that down. It's a powerful scene in his God-given vision of every tribe, every tongue, every color, every race, and he said it was a multitude beyond number. So there's something about a God who created a diverse creation who loves all of us. Our melanin, or lack thereof, our culture, our distinctives, there's something that is to God's glory when a fellowship of difference become one. Heaven and earth, different, becoming one. Black, brown, white, becoming one people without losing their distinctives. I believe that, yeah, there will be. Because of what we see in glimpses of Jesus, glimpses of his humanity, and what we see in Revelation chapter 7. Number six. Number six. What are saints? The short answer is all of us. But what this question asker means is saints by way of Catholic teaching. By way of sure bet, they're in heaven, they are saints, see Mother Teresa, etc., etc. This person said, I was raised believing that saints were people who were definitely in heaven and could intercede on our behalf. Maybe you grew up in a Catholic tradition and you said, I'm going to pray to a saint. Now, before us Protestants get all bent out of shape, think about this. Raise your hand if you've asked a human living person to pray for you the last week. Okay? Now... If we believe that these saints have died and are still living with God, why can't we also communicate with them if they're still alive and they've, they're closer than God to God, at least maybe physically or spiritually or something? So you can't blame them for thinking, well, we do it here. Why can't we do it there? I would just say I think that it's going a little bit too far, When you look at two things, Hebrews 11 speaks and Hebrews 12 speaks of the cloud of witnesses. And I think that you can import too much into this great arena of those who've gone before us that are really captivated by what's going on on earth. I don't think that's what Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is intending. I think we're importing a lot of thought that they care so much about what's going on today And I would say Hebrews 10 that comes before it says we have Jesus as our high priest. We have Jesus who's our mediator. Holy Spirit is interceding in Romans chapter 8. So I would say the Bible does very clearly teach that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are interceding for us. So as much as I love those saints who've gone before us, If the Bible tells me go boldly before the throne through Jesus, why would I be trifling with saint whoever if I can literally just talk to Jesus? So that's why that fell off after the Reformation and didn't carry over in a large swath of the Protestant church. And finally, I'll say that the term used by uh, the New Testament writers of saints is literally the term for anybody who's in Christ. So it ain't just Mother Teresa, it's you and me. My first job, my second job was at a Christian bookstore. This is why I became a pastor, I guess. And I remember checking out this person from, you know, whatever, ringing her up. And she goes, you know, I learned something crazy this week. She said, we're all saints. And I said, yeah, sure. Because I'm 17 and you thought I was bad in seminary. You should have known me when I was 17. And she goes, no, it's true. I said, lady, I'm a sinner. And she goes, no, you're a saint who might sometimes sin. And I said, listen, if I like to run and I'm in the act of running, what do you call me? She says, a runner. And I said, I like to sin. I do it a lot. I'm a sinner. And she goes, you'll get it someday. You're in Christ. You're forgiven. You're his. You're a saint. Well, it took me 20 years, but I think I got it now. Verse, verse 7. Question 7. We doing okay? How do we preach the gospel without letting people know about hell? Uh, The short answer to that is, um, and I don't mean this in a trite way, Acts is really, really fascinating. The gospel of John is really fascinating. Neither of those books that are meant to lead people and teach the gospel ever use the word hell in their preaching and teaching. So we can start there. I don't mean that in a trite way. I'm saying it's possible. If the wages of sin are death, separation from God after we die, so that's Romans 3, Romans 5. And that means hell. How do we go about it? Are you saying preach the gospel without using fear tactics? The answer to that last one is an emphatic yes. That's how we talk to our kids. We don't try to scare them or manipulate them. So What do we do? What do we talk about when it comes to that? I think we need to understand that the gospel is primarily not about heaven and hell. And this is where all of us Southern Baptists go. (gasps) Because we've made the wrong theological biblical move to say it's only about going to heaven and hell. And if we just looked at biblical data, you'd know that that's not true. Jesus preached the gospel and any time you talk about the gospel, it is the good news that Jesus is Lord. So that's the primary message and news of the gospel. However, when Jesus then explains more of that, he says, so repent. Turn away from death. Turn away from sin. Turn to me. I am Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is raised and risen. The reigning Lord turn to him. So the gospel is about primarily the lordship of Jesus. So we announce that he's Lord and we invite them into God's kingdom. And the outcome of that is that they receive life now and forever. And to rebel and reject that, to not repent, you remain in a state of death and whatever that entails moving forward. So Jesus did warn people, But I think there are ways of inviting people into life and love of Jesus where we don't have to scare the H-E double hockey sticks out of them. I think we can also warn them seriously, but you got to turn, you got to come, you got to experience forgiveness in life. Now, number eight, it seems that preaching the reward punishment notion of heaven and hell would be an easier sell for the church than teaching people to be like Jesus. Let's think about this in modern terms, right? Um, You're a sinner, so would you admit you're a sinner, believe that Jesus is Lord, and just, like, confess? And then if you pray this prayer, you can go to heaven when you die. And they say amen, and you say good. And we baptize them, and we kick them in the pants and say, come to church every once in a while and give some money. That's a lot easier than in saying take my cross upon you daily and follow me. Come and learn my rhythms. Come and walk my way. So what he's talking about, isn't that a shortcut? Isn't that easier? Just to say, pray this, don't get punished. Are you with me? Now the question continues. Was this a deliberate move by the church at a certain point to get more folks on board? And if so, when did this transaction take place? I'm not a church historian, but all the lurid images of hell and fire and brimstone really originated around the Middle Ages. What else was happening in the Middle Ages? Between year 1000 and year 1500, they're bookended by two great church splits. In 1080, the Orthodox and on the East, And the Roman church on the west split. And so the Roman church was consolidating power politically and people-y. So they wanted to make sure that if you stayed within their system and you paid for their indulgences and you took their sacraments. And then Dante's Inferno getting more and more popularity. And then they start to do plays that... Brought in the smell of sulfur to repulse and repel, and it's like the earliest version of a megachurch or a hell house. They didn't have a smoke machine, but they had stuff that was very similar. And so they're trying to consolidate people power and um, uh, political power, so they wanted to make sure that they're getting folks on board. And the only way to avoid the fires of hell is to remain within the church. And so then in the 1500s when we have the Reformation that disentangles the idea of a state church where you don't just get born and you get a certificate of citizenship for, let's say, Germany. You also become part, with baptism, a member of the church. So it's disentangling that power. It's disentangling that fear. And so I think that there's something around that time that really ramps up the fear tactics so that people could just make sure they're in. The modern version is what I just described at some vacation Bible schools, and the old school version was something akin to that. Because it's harder to be an apprentice. It's easier for a magic formula. Does that make sense? That's my best guess. Question nine. So if let's assume there's no eternal conscious torment, a.k.a. the traditional or infernalist view of hell, Are you saying that Hitler, Ted Bundy, etc. experienced the same end as my super kind, thoughtful, atheist neighbor who does lots of good things? My short answer is, I don't think that. No. And I'll tell you why. The first reason is, we have this wrong-headed thought that the quote-unquote wicked, spoken of in the Bible, is a synonym for, listen, non-Christian. Why did we make that leap? Because of question eight. It's easier to get people scared and assured than to invite them into the mystery and apprenticeship of Jesus. So I don't think so because, number one, wicked does not equal non-Christian. Secondly, I think our lives and actions matter and all will be accounted for. Can I say that again? Everything in our life will be accounted for, Christian or not. This is a clear teaching, and it's uncomfortable for us, but there's something when the the Bible talks about judgment that takes your actions into account, how you've loved, how you've given. And the good news is that if you're in Christ, you're covered with grace upon grace. You're already on the side of the righteous. But our lives matter, and all will be accounted for. Because Jesus speaks also of surprises at the end. A lot of people will say, Lord, when did I do all this? I didn't even know what I was doing. He said, yeah, but whatever you did it to those, you did it to me. And there's a surprise at the end of Matthew 25 and elsewhere. And because our lives and hearts are known by God, the life and heart of an atheist, sweet Some kind of neighbor. I mean, I just wonder that God is more wise and just and good. And he understands the hearts of people. But that doesn't negate the invitation to announce and invite these people into a life-giving relationship with Jesus. But I don't know the kind of baggage or hurt that this person has received. But God does. And I think that we're going to be rubbing elbows in the new heavens and the new earth with all kinds of surprising people. And they're just as maybe surprised as we are. And you say, that sounds universalist or that sounds crazy. I'm just hedging my bets on a more wise and just and merciful God than we give him credit for. That's what I'm saying. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But to the Hitler and Ted Bundy point, I think what they're experiencing and what they have to account for, and God knows their hearts and motives as well, is something that will have a different grade or level of experience than someone like that. I didn't mention it in this series, but I really like this book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. How many of you have heard it? It's a novel. And so he says at the beginning, hey, I'm not saying it's like this, but there's enough metaphors and thoughts in there that really get us thinking about it. And so one of the the spaces, the, 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 it's been a while since I've read it, but it, it's like, hey, I want to go see like Genghis Khan, you know, somebody who's like, they're Hitler, you know what I'm saying, like 100 years ago, and um, I mean, before that, but when this book was written in the 40s or whatever, uh, 60s, I don't even know, I should have researched this, I didn't write this down, <laughs> The Great Divorce, it's a great book, I promise I've read it, and so they talk about how this allegory of hell, those great famous sinners, They said, we could, but it's going to take you like a million years to see them, because they are so far away. They are so far. They have turned their hearts so inward. They have turned their hearts so far away from God and neighbor that they are like not even in the same universe. There's something of these kinds of accounting for the most grievous and heinous, the most wicked that does not equal non-Christian. But there's something about their experience that is reserved for the most dramatic and, um, and sober warnings. That's my thought on that as our light comes on and tells me I've been talking for a long time. Number 10, this is very similar to this. If people don't choose Jesus, do they have eternal separation from him, i.e. hell? I've wrestled with other cultures and religions that have good people, but we're taught that only God is good. So those other religions that love their neighbors well, that live a good life, do we know what happens to them? I know some Hindus that love people incredibly well. They go to India to teach the poorest of the poor, English. They serve, they give. I know they don't believe in Jesus, and I just don't know what to do with that. And so essentially, can there be good without God? The short answer to the last part is yes, because we're made in God's image. And there's something, some fingerprint that remains on all human people that is somehow mirroring the care and reflection and creativity and goodness of God. Now, we need to turn from the ways of the world that persist in distorting and uh, moving us away from that so that we may find our heart's true home in God. But what about those people that don't even know the name Jesus? How about all those people who lived before Jesus came 2,000 years ago? What about 10,000 years before? What if they've never heard the name Jesus today? Again, I'm hedging my bets on God who is infinitely wise, infinitely just, and infinitely more gracious. But to put a finer point of it, I will say, not just the deep and wide grace of God, how about the cosmic consequence of Christ crucified? Read the middle section of Romans 5, 6, 7, 8. That's all about how lost we are, but all about how huge Christ's crucifixion and resurrection is. Read Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, how he's filling all things. Read 2 Corinthians 5 about how he is reconciling the world to God. There's something cosmic that happens, so let me just say this, if you think I'm not answering it. Those who are born, who have never heard, we trust God's grace. We trust the cosmic and cataclysmic work of the cross, and I'll tell you this, everyone who's there, got there because of what Jesus did. I'm not saying that every road and every way, I'm saying that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so if there is anyone there, they are there because of Christ. If anyone is there, it's because Christ made the way for them. If anyone is experiencing eternal life, they're experiencing it in Christ. If anyone is receiving the goodness Of God it is because of Christ and his mercy and so I think that there is so much room for so many people whoever gets there gets there through Jesus but there will be many rooms in the father's house with people that existed before Jesus did in his earthly ministry because Christ has always existed and God has always been gracious and there's mystery and we trust God's wisdom and justice It's sort of an inclusivist position that there's many people that will get there. That surprises, but they're getting there because Jesus got them there some way, somehow, whether they knew him or not. I cannot believe that billions of people are eternally consciously tormented because of a guy they could not have ever physically heard of. And I can't point to this or that Bible verse I can point to gobs of them about God's love for his creation and world, but I will look somebody that tells me billions of people are that lived in 10,000 BC, and I will say, you need to go to counseling, my friend. If you're not really wrestling with this or daring to believe, and if I go stand before Jesus at the end and said, "You, you talked way too good about me, you said I was way too gracious, then man, I'll be just as surprised as anybody. But for now, I feel pretty confident saying, I'm going to keep talking about that. Is that cool? And I have a hunch he says yes. Number 11, not inclusivist, but regarding the universalist position. I'm assuming that they would say that all the people I described above would go to heaven. The short answer is yes, with a caveat. A faithful universalist position is not that Hitler dies or Genghis Khan dies, and they open their eyes and they're in like, the paradise or the third heaven and everything is rocking and rolling. They say, cool, I just killed six million people and I still got this sweet digs. No, no, no. A universalist will say the journey continues because one of the things we can deduce from the New Testament is that your life matters. Everything will be accounted for. You'll be forgiven. You'll be reconciled. You'll make it through. It'll be okay. There's no condemnation or whatever the adverse of that is. And you'll experience something akin to death, because the wages of sin is death. But the universalist would say, we're not even sure there's death. We think that the journey will continue so long, so deeply, that even the worst of the worst will someday be won over, and they'll see Jesus, and maybe it takes one year or a million, but ultimately, in the end, all will be renewed, all will be redeemed not one person will be lost. And in 1 Timothy, it says that God hopes that all may be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So let's just hope that God gets what he wants. I'm not sure I can go that far on a universalist position, but let's be fair to them and say, they don't think that anything goes no matter what. They would say the journey continues and they're holding out hope that there's hope for all. Does that make sense? I'm going to end with this final question and some thoughts while our kids are here and being so good and patient. How would you describe Afterlife Matters concretely for kids who understand things so literally? Um, The response to that is, Amy, how would we describe Afterlife Matters concretely for kids? The, The thing that I've been wrestling with is this. This is all spiritual, this is all theoretical, and it's so not concrete. You saw my fumbling attempts with broken crayons, and so I think that at some point, we can just try to open their hearts and minds to the mystery, and I would say here's how as we close. In my experience, you ask questions about what they think, and you keep asking them, and then you ask another follow-up, And you see how they're processing and you honor that because they're telling you, here's how I'm trying to understand. With their responses to your questions, that's them telling you without telling you, here's as much of the capacity as I have to understand these things that you don't even know fully about. You with me on that? So start with them. Ask questions about what they think. Then ask a follow-up. Then another. You can ask Emma and Nora how many questions I ask on the way to school. Second, these mysteries should be taught at some point because they're not just caught. If they're just caught, then they're going to wind up like that 11-year-old that was worried about Jesus whipping them for every A word they said. That's not helpful. At some point we say, it's a mystery, But you can be with God now and forever, and someday we'll be raised like Jesus too. And that opens up a bunch more questions, and you can sit with that mystery with them. Number three, check in with more than one conversation. Not just about afterlife, but about this life with God now. What does it mean to say yes to him now and forever? What do you think that means? How can you say yes to Jesus' way today? Someday you'll feel a big kind of yes. This is, I want to be a Christian. I want to be baptized. Let's talk about that. Let's check in. When I was thinking about the talk with a capital T when it comes to parents and children, one of the best advice I got was, don't just have the talk, have the talks. You with me on that? I think the same is true in these big faith matters. Number four, finally this. Assure them of God's relentless love. This perfect love casts out fear. If they are worried about H-E double hockey sticks, please, please, you can call me. But before you call me, tell them, God loves you. You need not worry. He has said yes to you in Christ Jesus. And one day, you will have this sense of you saying yes back to him, to follow him, to give your life to him. But until then, know that God cares for you, God loves you, because nobody asked this, but I'll tell you, I have a pretty good hunch that if billions of people that existed 10,000 years ago aren't burning, neither are babies and these precious ones that God loves and longs for. I rely on his mercy, his grace, so you can assure them of God's relentless love. This perfect love casts out fear. This love has no more condemnation. That's what I have. I was going to ask you what you think, but we're pretty much out of time and these kids have been so great. So let's treat this as a conversation that leads to more conversations. Call me, text me, email me, Adam at TNC Garland. Thank you for those who submitted questions. Thank you for your patience here this evening. Can I pray and then Kelly will come and let's receive communion as a response. Lord, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, who was crucified, died and was buried after suffering under Pontius Pilate. I Believe in the resurrection, the Holy Spirit, the communion of saints. I believe in the life everlasting. I believe all these things and more because they're all mysteries, but I've come to know you. So will we continue to seek you and find you? And when we don't have answers, will we have a sense that you're with us and you'll never leave us nor forsake us? And when we stare brokenness in the face, would you remind us of the hope that we have, even though it's unseen? Would these elements, the bread and the juice, be tangible reminders of your grace and mercy? that you have called us and you will finish what we, you have started. Through Christ our Lord, amen and amen.